MSW Media. I signed an order appointing Jack Smith. And nobody knows you. And those who say Jack is a fanatic. Mr. Smith is a veteran career prosecutor. Wait, what law have I broken? The events leading up to and on January 6th. Classified documents and other presidential records. You understand what prison is? Send me to jail! Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 33 of Jack, the podcast about all things special counsel. It is Sunday, July 16th, and I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Andy McCabe. Uh, Allison, it is another banner week for the special counsel investigation, (laughs) which is, of course, always good for this podcast. Um, In the documents case, as predicted, we have a motion from the Trump team to delay the trial beyond the end of the world. No, actually, just beyond the election. Uh, And then, of course, DOJ is fired back. Uh, We also have the first SEPA conference coming up this Tuesday and a speedy trials report filed by the special counsel. Yeah, and that's just the documents case. And, we, you know, we just got some breaking news, too. We'll talk about later in the documents case. Another target letter has gone out. We knew that that investigation was ongoing. He said that when he did his protective order for unclassified uh, discovery. And so it, it here, we, you know, it seems like there may be more charges coming. And in the January 6th investigation, we have all kinds of news about testimony from folks like Hope Hicks and Jared Kushner. We have Wyndham, the top prosecutor for January 6th, seen twice this week entering the federal courthouse with no other notable witnesses seen, and that's in D.C. And the Department of Justice is appealing the Oath Keeper's sentences for being too short. Uh, but first, Just Security has prepared a model prosecution memo for January 6th, and joining us today is one of its authors, senior fellow at Brookings, legal analyst for CNN. Please welcome Norm Eisen. Hi, Norm. Hey, Allison. Hey, Andy. <laughs> hey, Norm. Great to see you somewhere other than the CNN green room. <laughs> Pleasure hanging out anywhere with the two of you. There you go. Yes. And we wanted to get you on uh, quickly here to talk about this Pross memo. So I know that you're in a remote location and you're on your phone. So uh, everybody, you know, just that's what's going on. We're not in studio right now. I just wanted to, you know, give a little uh, uh, heads up about why maybe it sounds the way that it does. But I thought it was important to get you in here quickly. Uh, and But before we get to, to the, the Pross memo, can you explain what a model Pross memo is and an actual prosecution uh, or uh, Pross? memo is? Well, um, in order to get um, authorization to initiate uh, a prosecution in um, the Department of Justice, Andy well knows, Mm -hmm. uh, but also in uh, state and local prosecutors' offices, Uh, You typically uh, need to provide a uh, prosecution memo or pros memo uh, that explains um, the um, reasons that the uh, charges uh, meet the charging standards at DOJ, that is, uh, uh, in sum, the ability to obtain a conviction at trial, and then to sustain that conviction on appeal, uh, you identify the defendants, you identify the charges. Uh, Sometimes you'll say uh, a word about uh, the defenses and why they won't be successful. They're not voluminous documents. Uh, I know we'll talk about my inspiration for this uh, 
250-page model pros memo. It's the only 250-page model pros memo in the history of pros memos because <laughs> the actual ones are shorter. They're more like the inspiration, Barb McQuaid's uh, model pros memo for the January 6th crimes, for the election interference crimes that she did over a year ago. Uh, but I'm trying to do some other things in this model pros memo. Uh, sometimes you've got to write a very long memo to be very simple. And one of my goals was to sift through everything, come up with a simple theory of the case. So it's a little longer than the typical. I should I should add here to, to Norm's explanation. These pros memos are typically uh, hallowed and somewhat mysterious documents. They are, at least in the federal system, they are entirely the product of the assistant U.S. attorney's who work on the cases, and they're not even shared with the FBI. So if you're an FBI agent, you brought the case in, and you've worked hand-in-hand with your AUSA for months, you typically won't ever even see the PROS memo. It's a very uh, closely guarded document. Yeah, that's really, I, 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 I wish we could have seen some of the Pross memo. Like, I would really like to kick back with a brandy and read the Manafort <laughs> Pross memo. Uh, but, you know, that's just me. I'm, I'm a little odd. I've got weird hobbies. Um, but we, we did cover Barb McQuaid's model Pross memo uh, on, on the Daily Beans. But a lot of new information has been made available since her memo for Just Security. But what I take away from both is the simplicity. Uh, like you mentioned, you, you break it down to three people, Trump, Eastman, and Cheesebro, and of course, Ancillary, Meadows, and, and Rudy, depending on their level of cooperation. And you break it down into three parts, the conspiracy to defraud the U.S. through fraudulent electors, obstructing the electoral count by pressuring Pence, and inciting the insurrection when all else failed. And I was really struck by the simplicity of this, because I'm thinking sprawling, hundreds of witnesses and, you know, which there is because it, which is, you know, evidenced in the length of your pros memo because there's so much evidence here. But the simplification of it, I was, I was very struck by that. I was like, where's all the members of Congress and Ellis and, you know, all these other folks and every, you know, all the different, the wire fraud investigation into, you know, defrauding donors, uh, everything that came up in the January 6th hearings. Talk a little bit about why you think it has to be simple like this, the benefits of it, and whether or not whether or not that was sort of informed by the recent indictment down in Miami in the documents case. Um, it was. Look, part of it was when I set out to do the work of what was needed, you know, the the sprawling um, uh, landscape of everything that happened and why it is so wrong uh, and going in depth was brilliantly done. Truly amazing work by the January 6th committee. I myself have worked in and around Congress for three decades, mostly defending congressional witnesses. Of course, I worked up there for a year as impeachment counsel for the first impeachment. I think the January 6th committee's work and their magisterial final report will go down in history as um, none finer in the history of Congress when it comes to investigations. But that presents a problem for writers and analysts like me, which is, how do you follow up? So it occurred to me, uh, it occurred to me that um, we should replicate how I think DOJ and 
Jack Smith and his team are dealing with all that, which is to ask, the, and this is the question that I've asked myself as a trial lawyer uh, for, for 30 years plus, what is the simplest possible case? It's like the litigation version of Occam's razor. What is the simplest possible case that I can bring and win while doing justice and, you know, getting uh, a uh, significant jury outcome, right? You don't want to bring uh, like one misdemeanor. Uh, and, and I realized it took weeks, uh, months of sifting through that amazing work by the committee. I realized that there was this simple path that's kind of modeled on the simplicity of the Mar-a-Lago indictment, uh, which is... Trump tried everything in the world and it all failed. But when that ended, from running from the election to the uh, failure of the Raffensperger call in early January, uh, when that ended, he was left holding these counterfeit certificates. He pivoted really starting the morning of January 4th to an intense 48-hour pressure campaign on Pence to use those phony certificates it's like counterfeit uh, money. I mean, they're just uh, 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 complete fakes to get Pence to um, throw Congress off of uh, confirming the electors of the rightful winner. And when that failed, Trump resorted to truly his last ditch of violence. Um, and with those very, those three acts, phony electoral certificates, squeezing pants, insurrection, map onto three statutes very neatly. Um, you can have, by the way, um, you can have multiple counts under each of these three charges, right? And you will. So you can do one count for each of the fake electoral certificates uh, under 18 U.S.C. 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States using this these phony docs. This Act Two, the pressure on Pence, um, that is uh, 18 U.S.C. 1512, uh, the obstruction of an official proceeding in Congress, which they wanted Pence to do. And then Act Three, the violence, um, 18 U.S.C. Um, 2383, uh, giving aid and comfort to insurrectionists. And within each of those acts, you can boil it down even more for a jury. But I really tried to think about making it simple for the jury. And then, you know, all 250 plus pages of analysis flowed from that. We do have a nice short introduction and it does mm -hmm. lend itself. It does lend itself to uh, social media length explication. You know, yeah, I agreed. I, I think that approach is so important. We've been talking about this week after week, how, it's really hard to look at what is essentially an enormous mess and distill from it a, a comprehensive but clear narrative that you can present to a jury in a trial that will bring them to the decision to convict someone. Um, and, you know, you look across the vast arc of everything that led to January 6th and then what happened in the aftermath, and there's that, tons of people and different storylines and all kinds of criming, as Allison would say, going on in many different directions. 
But you can't just throw all that at 12 jurors. You have to kind of pick, pick and choose the places where your story is most impactful and most easily understood. Um, and that's one of the things that I like about the, the approach that you've taken here. It really kind of focuses on what's most important. Maybe you leave some things on the cutting room floor, but those, you know, uh, no great novel is ever written without a really good editor, right? You, you, have to have a re- you have to have someone who's willing to come in and say, nope, this doesn't make the cut. Let's keep it tighter. Let's uh, make more sense. And I think that's uh, kind of what you've done here. And yeah. it doesn't, three points about that. Number one, it doesn't have to be my simplification. There are other ways that undoubtedly that Smith can simplify this case, but I think he has to do that. No seven chapters. That's right. I cannot emphasize enough what a great job the January 6th committee did, what a need there was to cover everything. Smith is clearly looking at all of those different chapters in his work. Juries cannot hold seven things in mind. No. And then three is what they can grasp. That's point one is so it doesn't have to be this simplicity, but some simplifying rubric. Point two, Allison, uh, to your comment on the defendants that is agonizing smith does not need to deal however with um letting all those potentially culpable people go we have a whole section of the report where we identify we call it um targets uh, subjects and witnesses where we identify the huge list of people that could be looked at here um i think he we, 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 you know that 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 big five the kind of uh, Mount Rushmore of uh, election interference, Trump and Meadows, the clients, and then Eastman, Chesbro, and Giuliani, the lawyers. Um, that That is a sensible, and I might even go small. I mean, he's he is certainly keeping it to one hand in the um, Mar-a-Lago case. Um uh, and, you know, you could even go smaller than five. And then the final point is within the chapters, take a simple approach to there's a big debate you can have. Should we tell a long story about um, Trump's uh, preparation for insurrection and the ellipse speech? And I wrote Michael Ludig loved this. We got some very nice praise and a Twitter thread from Michael Ludig after we released the report. He loved my explanation of how prosecutors could deal with the First Amendment issues if they charged Trump for the ellipse speech. I say sidestep it. Occam's razor. Search for this explanation that is constructed with the smallest possible set of elements. I was joking with Allison before the podcast just for insurrection, for giving aid and comfort and insurrection under 2383. Just charge the 224 tweet and the 187 minutes of inaction to evict the protesters when Trump had the power. He's admitted that, the mm-hmm. power, and and he also had the legal duty to do it. So um, uh, 224 plus 187 equals 2383. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that it. math. I like that math. And I think, I think it's very interesting, too, you know, with the simplicity of the Mar-a-Lago documents indictment. We just have two... Uh, co-defendants, Nauda and Trump, and the investigation was ongoing. We learned today that a target letter went out to somebody else uh, in in that case. And so, you know, when you talk about subjects, witnesses, 
uh, and targets in, in the pros memo. It's like, get these three done on these five-ish, uh, and then continue your investigation into the wire fraud, into the members of Congress, into the, and, you know, anything else, you know, more specific into the fraudulent electors with, the, you know, people who were down, you know, maybe on the ground, the, the, the Wiltons and, and those types of uh, those types of lawyers, all the other 17 lawyers that were subpoenaed about uh, Jenna Ellis or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many other people to look at, but that can be done after. And I think that the timing is very interesting here because, first of all, we've got election season next year. I know that Jack Smith's team uh, is concerned about uh, the timing, but also the timing of your release of this pros memo, because all of a sudden in the news, there's all of these witnesses coming out to the press and talking about what they told the grand jury in June. And now we see Wyndham going in without any other notable witnesses into the D.C. federal court, uh, Prettyman, where, where the grand jury meets. And it seems like indictments could be nigh. Uh, and I think it was a, an important move to get this uh, pros memo out before any of that happened. What what are you what are was there any consideration of the timing of the release of this report uh, with the with the pending or <laughs> indictments? You know, um, it, it even before we had Wyndham's multiple visits to the grand jury this week uh, with no apparent witnesses there. Um, it, it, there were a lot of the signs of. Uh, an investigation that is reaching its culmination were there publicly. Um, you, you know, my experience, mostly as a defense lawyer uh, since the early 90s, my experience in my cases was you didn't want to put a uh, Mike Pence or a Mark Meadows uh, in the grand jury early because you wanted to have all your other information ready so you could ask them about what other witnesses have said. You could show them documents. Um, giving immunity to culpable parties is not something that you do early on because you might, um, you really want to be able to evaluate the food chain before you, as is reported, before uh, you immunize or negotiate immunity uh, with uh, the likes of a um, uh, a Roman, you know, who ran this apparently for the Trump campaign. Uh, very, uh, you know, fake electors getting immunity, like in Nevada, right? That's more towards the end of an investigation where you've made up your mind, okay, we're not going to go for the fake electors were going to focus uh, at the people at the top of the food chain. So I think there were a lot of signs. There's a vibe. There's like a, a, a buzz here inside the Beltway in D.C. Something's coming. You know, I'm on we're all on call for uh, cable bookers uh, kind of on very short notice. Um, Not me. Let them know so, I'm free, though. <laughs> I will. Andy, Andy, we'll, we'll have we'll some pass of ours. Word, won't we? <laughs> Andy and I certainly are. Um, sometimes we see each other in the green room and then the, the, whatever the news they're expecting doesn't happen. We had one the other week where they told us, go home, guys. 
Yeah, um, you got to love that so, drive in there for nothing. That's a uh, that's a winner. I, for me, it's a shorter one. For me, it's a shorter one. So um, uh, in the, in the like comedy the business, we chocolate. call that getting getting bumped. We we call that you know, uh, you're, oh, you're ready to go you on stage. Like yeah, you're ready to go on stage at the if improv, and then like Dane Cook walks in and takes your spot, and you're like, I'm yeah. way funnier than him. Yeah, I'm you, fine. you're ready to go on and talk um, about SEPA hearings, and all of a sudden Britney Spears gets insulted at the ESPYS. <laughs> so you're like, out, yeah, you're out. <laughs> Um, you know what if you don't like getting bumped uh do not do cable tv i mean andy and i are we're on contract but you get you get booked and bumped all the time i keep a complete this i know this is not what we we uh, came to the to jack to talk about today but i keep a complete separate schedule of stuff even when i'm scheduled for cable because half the time you know yeah. there's there's breaking news right and then i just apologize when i'm actually needed or like it's never more than 10 minutes it's got to be like historic yeah uh, like the mar-a-lago arraignment to be more than 10 minutes yeah so yeah. i'm just like hey i'll be 10 minutes late for the zoom yeah, well, we don't want to keep you today. You might get a call. Who knows? Any minute. So I'm, I'm, uh, but I'm very glad that you. Not today. <laughs> Never on Fridays. I know this is not one where you uh, put the video on, but you know, I'm thoroughly. It's the last day of my vacation. I'm thoroughly <laughs> in vacation mode, baseball cap and all. So uh, today I'm going to go buy bagels. I'm going to nice. go. That's my next big appointment after this. It was Friday for Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> I mean, Thursday night, but Friday for Mar-a-Lago. And I oh mean, we God. had the whole thing on the on the Muller She Wrote podcast. We had Felony Fridays. They always dropped on fun Friday. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, be, be prepared. But, I'm, you know, I, we, we definitely want to, you know, don't want to keep you too long because we know you're at the tail end of uh, your vacation there. But um, uh, just before we let you go, uh, talk just for a second about um, – how you see, like, you know, we talked about the the maybe potentially additional charges in, in Mar-a-Lago for the Mar-a-Lago documents case. Is that how you see it going down uh, for this case? We get the three main ones and then they continue investigating and continue adding indictments and charges at later dates for other people? 100%. In fact, we, um, we have a, an appendix on the DOJ conspiracy Again, that act one is Trump tried subverting DOJ. He tried getting state legislatures uh, to do stuff. He tried pressuring governors. He tried Raffensperger. He tried everything. He explored seizing voting machines. Uh, you know, when he tried the whole litigation strategy. When everything else failed, what he was left with was these wicked or gullible fake electors who had signed these certificates. Um, so all of those other failed conspiracies should be put on the shelf. Let's bring a case to trial against Trump. Let's do it in the next year. If you get the right judge, like I've done cases in the Eastern District of Virginia, the rocket docket. Mm-hmm. If you get a judge who puts it on a rocket docket, now they'll charge us in DC. But if you get the right judge in um, DC, DC, um, you, 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 it can go to trial in a year. The American people deserve to know if a president, major presidential candidate, possible nominee is a convicted felon or not, uh, precisely for attacking elections. 
and then like we did an appendix on Jeff Clark and the DOJ conspiracy. Smith can bring those other cases in the fullness of time. But I think uh, so. Mm -hmm. I very much think, you know, multiple pots will be boiling on the back of the stove. Uh, but let's have a nice three course meal digestible, <laughs> digestible for a judge and jury. <laughs> Please be Judge Beryl Howell. Please be Judge Beryl Howell. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking time. Uh, and and I encourage everyone to just take some time to read the Pross Memo. You can find it at Just Security or on uh, Norm's Twitter, Norm Eisen. Uh, so, you know, we're going to let you go now, but you're in our hearts for the rest of the weekend as we read this memo. That's right. Thank you so much, Thank Norm. You, Allison. Great Thanks, seeing you Andy. here and uh, enjoy the end of the vacay and see you soon at uh, at work. Always great to see you both and uh, have me back. It was fun talking. Awesome. We're going to have, we have so much more news to get to. Um, this is going to be a pretty long show, but we had, we do have to take a quick break. So everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer. I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. <laughs> Welcome back. Okay, let's continue with the January 6th investigation, which seems to be running fast and noisy these days. 
with what seems like a whole lot of witnesses telling the media that they've testified before <laughs> the grand jury, which is always very helpful to those of us watching the case closely. So in the last couple of days, we learned that Jared Kushner and Hope Hicks testified in front of the grand jury in June. And it seems, Allison, that both of them were asked a lot of questions about uh, whether or not Trump indicated that he knew he lost the election. Um, of course, we have all kinds of public information uh, that would that would I think go to proving that he knew he lost the election. You know, we have um, different folks who, like Alyssa Farrah Griffin, uh, who has testified before the grand jury in June. Also, she also told the Jan. Six committee that Trump had told her, and I quote, "I can't believe I lost to Joe Biden." Uh, so there's there's one pretty good indication that he knew he lost. Um, of course, Mark Milley said that uh, to also to, in an interview uh, with the January 6th committee, said that Trump uh, had indicated in an hour-long meeting that he wanted to leave Afghanistan, quote, for the next guy. So clearly implying that it was a problem he didn't want to deal with and that, you know, Biden, who would be coming in next, would have to deal with it. Uh, then, of course, we had the reports from the research firms that Jack Smith subpoenaed uh, in January this year. So these are two firms that were brought in by the Trump folks uh, to essentially look for evidence of fraud, both of whom reported back, so sorry, no fraud here. Um, and then, you know, you've got this uh, reams of testimony from lawyers, campaign people, White House counsel who uh, told Trump uh, that that he had lost, that there was no, uh, no indications to the contrary. So what do you think, Allison, in terms of the witnesses that they're bringing in now, um, possibly taking the other side uh, of that observation? Yeah, well, uh, it, it was reported, I think, by the Times that Michael Schmidt, that Jared is said to have told the grand jury, um, Jared Kushner, that he honestly believes Trump truly thought that he had won uh, the election. So here's, you know, one per put him in the Rudy Giuliani <laughs> and Sidney Powell uh, group uh, in, in, in our little caucus of, you know, normal and unnormal people. Uh, so, you know, I think getting everybody in, trying to figure out who's going to be, cause that's a defense, right? The defense is there's no corrupt intent. Right. And we talked, you and I talked about like, these are the last people you bring in to set up your defense. You're, you're kind of not doing fact finding anymore or crime, you know, then you're looking into the crime and you're looking at what the defense is going to be and how I, who I bring in to, to rebut a defense. And this is just, I think Jack learning, don't bring in Kushner. Now, of course, like that information would have to go over in discovery under Brady, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, I, I, I think that that's sort of what this is, you know, like Norm said, this is, these are indications of the tail end of, of, of an investigation and not anything that would happen uh, in the beginning. And I think that that corrupt intent, knowing he lost, it, it lends itself to obstructing an official proceeding. It lends itself to the wire fraud, you know, fundraising off of the big lie. There's a, a lot of different crimes here that you have to, you'd have to be able to prove intent for. And so, so I think that's what this is. I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. That n knowledge of the loss is, is key. It's the very red hot center of intent, and intent obviously applies uh, in any charge that Jack Smith would bring here. Um, it's also, you know, you think about a witness like Kushner. It's not necessarily the case, and I think it's, uh, I'm going to go further than that. I think it's unlikely that Jack Smith's team brought in Kushner and was and were surprised or disappointed by his testimony. I mean, it's pretty consistent with what he told the Gen 6 committee, so they they likely knew what to expect. 
but you would still bring a witness like Kushner in front of the grand jury, even if you had no intention of using him as a witness to prove your case later at trial, you want to lock him in, in the grand jury with what he's saying right now. Because anticipating that with that testimony, he is likely to be a defense witness over the course of his preparation for testimony at trial as a key defense witness, his statements have uh, could expand, right? He may he may come, you know, he may say something on the stand in Trump's defense that goes far beyond what he says last week or whenever it was in the grand jury. So having that testimony nailed down enables the prosecutors to come back and cross-examine. Kushner, if he takes the stand in a, in a trial uh, in, in Trump's defense, and point out inconsistencies with what he's saying on the stand for Trump and what he said in front of the grand jury uh, months earlier. And what he said at the January 6th committee. That's right. Is laying the foundation to show the jury, this guy's not Impeach telling you him. the truth. He's just trying to help out his father-in-law. It's what happened with Jim Baker in the, in the Durham Sussman yeah. uh, in trial and investigation. And, and Jim Baker's a good guy, but he he had inconsistent testimony between January between a congressional committee uh, inspector general testimony and grand jury testimony, and and that was helped the defense of Michael Sussman impeach him. On of the course, state. of course, and you know, and I do, and I think you're right that these are the kind of witnesses that you throw in front of the grand jury at the end. This is not like key to the beginning or middle of your investigation where you're looking for facts, you're following leads, you're really developing the investigative effort. Now you're just nailing down things uh, that you're trying to lock in in preparation for trial. Yeah, because in the May-June time frame, aside from all of these people, you know, are trying to get to Trump's state of mind and whether, whether he won the election or not, they also brought in state officials that were pressured by Donald to put forth fraudulent slates of electors, including Jocelyn Benson, yep. Rusty Bowers in Arizona, Raffensperger in Georgia, and just breaking today, the secretaries of state in Pennsylvania and New Mexico. Those are the two states, by the way, that put on their, their certificate the default message. This is only if the election is overturned somehow by by the uh, by the courts, uh, which I think is kind of got them out of any kind of trouble uh, mm -hmm. in, in their individual states. So that, um, you know, it seems like they're securing rebuttals to defense, like we talked about. Uh, and it feels like these would be witnesses that would bolster criminal charges for uh, a grand jury about to vote. Um, and, you know, because, I mean, you, you get the state of, state of mind for the fraud. I mean, if we're talking about the three charges that Norm just went over, you get the state of mind for the the fraud, the, the defraud in the United States, obstructing an official proceeding. You get the corrupt intent for acts for conspiracy by interviewing those state officials that he pressured. Uh, oh, and, and by the way, new reporting shows I, I this just came up today uh, for me from CNN. McEntee and Meadows have both testified. So all eight members of the <laughs> Ocha Nostra. <laughs> We've been counting down for a couple months. We have we have the, what is it, a full house? I don't know what, what do you even I, call this, but we're going to have Yahtzee? to come. Yahtzee? <laughs> I sunk your battleship. I sunk your battleship. Um, so we got, all, yeah. we got all eight members of the Ocha Nostra. And like we brought up with Norm Wyndham has been seen at the D.C. courthouse. Uh, is there anything else that a top prosecutor and a grand jury could be doing without witnesses besides? <laughs> but like, what else, what else would they just be like, uh, you know, what else I mean, could you be doing in there? You could be summing it up. You could be in there so giving them the final, here's, here's you know, here's what we think. 
Um, but you know, I'm, I'm trying to be trying to be fair here. It's possible that there's some sort of uh, underlying motion practice, sealed motions that are being, you know, fought over in court that are that are particularly significant. Those might draw out the chief prosecutor to either participate in the arguments or just see how they're going. Obviously, we have no information about that because we wouldn't. They would be sealed. Um, so there's there's a pretty small menu of items that could pull Wyndham out of his office and send him over to the courthouse <laughs> at this point. But we're missing we're missing the final meeting like we had in Mar-a-Lago yeah. where the the Trump lawyers met with DOJ to dance for their life, you know, to yep. say, don't indict my client. We haven't seen that. And we haven't seen uh, any shouting about target letters. Uh, in in this particular case, from for Eastman, right, uh, and or Trump, uh, so those are those are the missing elements here, uh, yeah. which is kind of what is leading me to believe that that the indictment would probably, if if it comes soon at all, it's not going to come until maybe next week or the week after. Uh, and you you know you think August, but I think before Fani goes because I, I think Norm is right on that. It was yeah. a really it's a really good idea to get that out there for her to see and then maybe uh, shuffle some things around. But, you know, obviously we're all just reading tea leaves, but it looks to me like it did in Miami right before the stuff went down. You saw Brat going in with the jury uh, after the day after Budowich went in with no other uh, witnesses coming in. Um, And then but then, you know, Trump started freaked out and told everybody he was indicted on social media. So I I imagine if that's the signal, that's the what is it? The black smoke that comes that comes out. That's what I'm looking for. It's the ill-timed tweet of can you believe I've been indicted for third time this year It's going terrible (laughs) for me. Uh, They're going to come after you, uh, the, you know. Yeah, yeah. If not me, it would be all of you getting indicted for insurrection. Not really, but um, <laughs> yeah. Who knows? I think there's a lot of, as we've said, a lot of signals that they are probably getting to the end. But predicting when exactly that day is going to be is very, very, very hard. I get asked this yeah. by CNN. I think every other day now. Um, yeah. But it's and it's Norm hard. came well, out with his with his pros memo, uh, yeah. and now and also. Another, what I consider a sign, but I could just be reading too much into this, the Department of Justice has appealed the Oath Keeper's sentences, saying they're too short. And this is, you know, these kinds of crimes are unprecedented in American history, and they need to be longer. We we know Amit Mehta went eight, you know, eight years below, seven years below uh, the, the mid-range of the mm-hmm. sentencing guidelines for most of these Oath Keepers, sometimes eight years below, sometimes less than a third of what was asked for. Uh, you know, and I spoke to a lot of my friends who are Capitol Police officers, and they seemed at first, uh, well, back then, they, they seemed satisfied. It's 18 years mm-hmm. is a long time. They seemed satisfied with these sentences. But when I talked to Harry about after uh, Merrick Garland and the DOJ appealed these sentences, uh, and I imagine they would have had to get Merrick Garland to sign off on this. They don't have to. They just have to get the Solicitor General to approve. But this mm-hmm. is such a high-profile case. I can't of imagine course, he didn't yeah. have a part in this. Uh, and Harry Dunn was like, I, you know what? This is amazing. I feel like DOJ, I feel like Merrick Garland has my back and I feel like he has the backs of the American people. And I thought that was a great quote from him. Yeah. But this to me seems like they're trying to set precedent for sentencing on a once in a lifetime crime of insurrection and sedition mm-hmm. and obstructing an official proceeding in this manner for when they want to sentence people at the top of 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 the attempted coup or the, the successful coup if you talk about delaying the electoral count, especially maybe on the 1512C2 obstructing an official proceeding crime yeah. or seditious conspiracy, which would probably be 
the sentencing guidelines are probably uh, calculated the same way you do seditious conspiracy because they go to treason and then they go mm-hmm. to obstruction because there, you know, there aren't any. So right. uh, it seemed very interesting, the timing on that appeal as well, because it's been six weeks since we got those sentences handed down. Yeah. So I, a couple things on this. I think it's worth noting how rare this is, right? The, in many garden variety, day after day criminal cases, the department doesn't even make a recommendation. They simply say, here's what the guidelines call for, and they leave it up to the court. They very rarely ever go back in and try to kind of pile on and and squeeze additional time out of a sentence that's been given. They kind of just take their lumps and walk away even when they're not particularly satisfied. So when you look at it from that perspective, this definitely has the feel that the government is trying to raise the roof, right? They're concerned that this has set a bar for the most active, arguably most culpable kind of people uh, on the ground on January 6th. Um, and they're trying to knock that <laughs> this thing a little bit, a, a bit higher to give themselves additional sentencing room for people who they might have coming down the line, uh, currently indicted or maybe soon to be indicted, who they would want to argue are... Um, you know, worthy of even longer sentences. Now, to be fair, the filing that DOJ made uh, was simply a notice of appeal. So we don't, they haven't actually made their appeal yet. They haven't made their arguments and laid them out for us to say, you know, what, what exactly they're, they're arguing or claiming. So we don't, we don't really know yet, but, um, you know, watch this space and uh, we will, I'm sure, uh, uh, discuss it when we get more from them. They might be waiting to see if they get a vote on a true bill for an indictment for some of these other people they intend to charge uh, before they start going to paper on uh, increasing the sentences for the yep. for the oath keeper. Who knows? But we don't know the reasoning. But that that would be one of my guesses. And you know, one of the rules of sentencing guidelines is like criminals need to be sentenced like other criminals who have done like crime. That's right. And this being uh, January sixth, being its own sort of in its own category of crime. Uh, you know, if you if you have a downward departure of eight years for somebody who obstructed an official proceeding on January 6th and you want to charge Trump, you aren't going to be able to go to that 25 year uh uh, recommended sentence for that particular crime if other people who have done the same thing on the same day weren't sentenced to uh to that uh, as well so that's that's actually one of the rules of sentencing right when you put your recommendations forward so we'll see what ends up happening we'll see um all the timing of all this i imagine if an indictment comes down we might see that appeal go into go get be filed but you know again we're just uh, all of this is speculation uh we're just sort of reading the tea leaves like we say yep all right, we have a lot more news to get to, believe it or not. Um, that's not the entire show. <laughs> uh, we have to talk about some stuff that happened in the documents case, uh, and then we'll answer some questions at the end as well. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis' first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA 
As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody, welcome back. Uh, As predicted, Andy, Trump has filed a motion to delay his documents trial. We're pivoting now to Mar-a-Lago. He wants it to take place indefinitely, sometime after the election. (laughs) Sometime just after never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because that's what that's totally what innocent people do. Like, right. No, I'm sorry. If I'm running for president and I'm innocent and I can have this trial over and done with and be acquitted. Speedy trial, baby. Hammer your rights. Speedy trial all day long. Yeah. I'm asking for a speedy trial. I mean, can you imagine what an acquittal would do for your campaign? I mean, uh, but, if, if he thinks he raised a lot of money on the indictment, I mean, it would be an embarrassment of uh, cash falling out of the sky if he had an, an acquittal yeah. during the campaign. Acquittal could carry him to the White House. Yeah. But he knows that that's not going to happen. So he wants to, to, to delay this. He doesn't <laughs> want a speedy trial. Uh, but before we get to the filings, there is a breaking update in the documents case. You remember how in the uh, protected, uh, the motion for... Uh, a protective order again uh, for the unclassified discovery. They were like, this is still an ongoing investigation. That's why you can't give it to the media and mm-hmm. tell everybody about our stuff. Well, the ongoing investigation uh, it looks like it might be about to produce some fruit. Uh, we have reporting that a low level Trump organization employee has been sent a target letter. And I'm wondering if this is the guy who flooded the server room or perhaps the IT guy who told him where the surveillance tapes are. But according to the New York Times, it has to do with the surveillance handling of the surveillance footage. Yeah. Uh, and and it's a low level uh, Mar-a-Lago employee. At first, I thought we might be frying up some calamari, but this is a low level uh, uh, employee, according to the Times. So what are your thoughts on this? I mean, we sort of pointed out that that whole scenario of the flooding of the server room was missing and totally absent from this indictment. So yep. this is interesting. And we know, you know, we've been tracking this kind of narrative with the uh, Jack Smith team on the documents case that there's this kind of this concern about possibly manipulating the surveillance tapes or obstructing their access to the surveillance tapes has been kind of bubbling up to the surface over the course of subpoenas and witness testimony. We haven't really been able to put it together, you know, in 
in a logical format yet, but this definitely signs, sends a signal that they have someone in their sights who they believe may have been involved in either destruct, uh, uh, altering or obstructing their access to that video. And of the or pe- lying about it, or lying or about lying it, or lying about it, right? And, and to the to the FBI and DC, that's also something that they they pointed out in the reporting that 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 might be what's going on here, might be what it's about. And, and the only other thing we know is that it's Stanley Woodward is their lawyer, whoever this is. No, of course he is. Come on, no wonder he can't get around it? to you know getting his uh, security clearance squared away for the for the uh, indictment. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I I, I think this is. Um, you know, the, the rules are you can continue investigating and you can do it through the existing grand jury that's already brought an indictment as long as you're going after new stuff, essentially. You're not supposed to keep using the grand jury for, you know, to continue to perfect the charges you've already brought, although there's a fair amount of gray area in interpreting what what it is you're doing and what the purpose of that those investigative steps are. So it's uh, pretty easy sometimes for prosecutors to make that rationalization. But here you have a good example of, no, we're using, we're continuing to use this grand jury uh, for the purpose of pursuing other defendants who were related to this matter. Now, when they bring any additional charges will have a big impact on whether or not that person is actually joined to the existing case or whether they proceed, you know, in the form of a superseding indictment or they proceed on their own in a totally separate path individual case. That's my guess of what will happen here, even not knowing who it's going to be or what the charges are. But uh, it sounds from the reporting so far, it's a much smaller, kind of more isolated uh, potential uh, criminal activity than than the scope of what we're looking at in the documents indictment so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and if it was for lying and he did it in D.C. and he also wasn't part of the conspiracy, it could the charges could come in D.C. Yes. But also Nauda lied to the um, investigators in D.C., but he was also part of the conspiracy that happened at Mar-a-Lago. So that might have made sense to go down there. So, you know, we'll see what ends up happening. Yes. But also, uh, so let's talk about the filing. Trump filed for an indefinite continuance, saying based on the extraordinary nature of this action, there is most assuredly no reason for any expedited trial, and the ends of justice are best served by a continuance. So this is going to be the first big test to see what Canon will do. I mean, we'll talk about the, the four-day delayed SEPA conference in a, in a second, but that, you know, that wasn't, they, they both agreed, both parties agreed to delay that four days, so that's not really a, a Canon call. Right. Um, she could have made it later, but she didn't. She she agreed to what the parties agreed to. So we're going to see, We uh, as of this recording, we do not yet know how she's going to rule on this. But some of Trump's arguments from the July 10th filing include the classification status of the documents and their purported impact on national security interests makes this complex. The propriety of utilizing any secret evidence in a case of this nature, uh, the inability to select an impartial jury during a presidential election, extensive and voluminous discovery. Come on, see Manafort. Uh, the challenges presented by the, the purportedly classified material that have yet to be produced, that has yet to be produced, and the completion of the security clearance uh, process, which how about are the all... initiation of the security clearance <laughs> process? Which we yeah, know... how about you fill out your form, bro? Yeah, it's delayed. That's like complaining about um, the line being too long at DMV when you haven't even gone to DMV yet. I mean, like it's <laughs> I, you know, let's go, guys, get in the get in the ring. You know, some of these claims are just so strange to me because they're really they're really attacking 
the system itself, the efficacy of these charges in the context of a request for, for a continuance, essentially, you know, the classification status of the documents and their purported impact on national security interests. Yeah, you should have thought of that before you started storing them in your bathroom or in the ballroom. Uh, <laughs> the propriety of utilizing secret evidence in a case of this nature. Like, these are all esoteric kind of theories, not actual reasons. Hey, judge, we need to push this case back for this number of months or until after X event for the following legal reasons. And, and that's really, I thought the, the government's response to this was really kind of zeroed them in on the law and the facts. There's nothing to this. There's no reason why Cannon should countenance it, but we shall see. That's the, that's the question yeah. now. And kind of exactly the arguments that you make when you when you you know when you and I talked after you had read his uh, you know motion for a continuance, because uh, DOJ says first of all there's no basis in law or fact for proceeding in such an intermediate and open ended fashion. There you go. And the defendants provide none. Um, so they said we he didn't even bring up the Speedy Trial Act of 1974, and all discussions must start there. So with all of his you know the little list of complaints that you that you just read. Just like your response, the DOJ said, first, your legal issues aren't new. You're not new here. Right. Okay. Um, and then as for the impact of the Presidential Records Act on this prosecution, any argument that it mandates dismissal of the indictment or forms a defense to the charges, he, that borders on frivolous. I think it is frivolous, but they said borders on frivolous. So frivolous is a strong word to use in a court document. Mm -hmm. Now, here's here's my favorite. This is a quote. The PRA is not a criminal statute and in no way purports to address the retention of national security information. The defendants are, of course, free to make whatever arguments they like for dismissal of an indictment, and the government will respond promptly. But they should not be permitted to gesture at a baseless legal argument, call it novel, and then claim the court will require an indefinite continuance in order to resolve it. <laughs> So well put. Yeah. I mean, this is like demanding the relief that you would get from winning a motion, like a motion to dismiss the indictment, before you've ever filed the indictment, much less argue, filed the motion or argued it. I mean, they're basically- He likes to do that. He yeah. did it with the special master thing before exactly. he was ever indicted. He was like, well, I need my evidence. That's right. He's, he, I say he, but of course we mean his lawyers uh, in this case- they are basically making an argument that is this whole thing should go away. It's not fair. It's not proper in the context of please give us a couple more months, which is just makes no sense whatsoever. No, absolutely not. And and we assumed that it, you know, that it wouldn't. The the DOJ goes on to say discovery does not warrant a continuance. SEPA doesn't warrant a continuance. Defendants remaining arguments are meritless. Uh, here's a good quote. The fact that you think you may be able to get the whole case dismissed isn't a reason under the Speedy Trial Act for a continuance. Plus, you cite no case law, which makes sense because you have it backwards. Uh, to say you can't get an impartial jury simply isn't true either. We have the jury selection process. It's there. It's been there for a long time. You're not, you know, you're not new. And if there's uh, are extra considerations, that's the reason to start the process. That's a reason to start sooner. Of course. Not later. Of course. Um, and f 
Then they close with, finally, the demands of defendants' professional schedules do not provide a basis to delay the trial. Many people who are indicted have demanding jobs that require a considerable amount of their time and energy or a significant amount of travel. The Speedy Trial Act contemplates no such factor as a basis for a continuance, and the court should not indulge it here. So, yeah, and very I, good, very the, good filing. The reply brief is a is a very worthy read. It's only about eight or nine pages long, and it's very factual. It says, you know, he's complaining as too much discovery. Here's exactly the discovery we've given him so far. Here's what he's getting next week. It's all been indexed in a way that's easy to get through it. Like, so you actually learn a lot about the nitty gritty of what's been going on between the two parties. So I, I totally recommend um, taking a look at it. I, I love the part about him complaining that he, he's, he can't hire contractors to help review the discovery. Like, why not? There's no limitation on adding people to your, to your defense team to meet your timing obligations. Like, and he certainly has the you know abundant resources uh, to get <clears throat> that done. Maybe Melania can do it. She got 155 grand from the Save America Pack. Maybe you could put Melania on it. Yeah, and then the um, final insult, of course, is that only two of these people have actually gone to the you know put themselves out to fill out the SF86, which is the form that you have to submit in order to get the clearance to review the classified evidence, which right now they're complaining that they can't do. Well, finish the paperwork and submit it, and then you can review it all day long. It's just, um, it's a really, I think it's a great uh, uh, peek at what we can expect here. Every step of this thing is going to be fought viciously. Uh, You're going to see ridiculous motions from the defense team, and Jack Smith's folks are going to dig in and fight back on every single one of them. So, you know, the wild card is, as I said, it's Judge Cannon. And I honestly, having read both briefs, Um, I have no idea where she'll come out on this thing. I think it's entirely possible that she just layers in her own kind of um, individual, not legally based, but kind of judgment in the way that she did over the the, uh, special master case. And just right, gave you know, him deference because he's a yeah. president or a former president or a presidential candidate. You know, she might say, "Well, at the time, even though the Eleventh Circuit told me to f off, uh, that was because I was said it was a former president, but now he's actually a presidential candidate, so that weighs differently. So I'm allowing." Yeah, the it's going to be really hard for him to campaign and also defend himself at the same time. Therefore, let's put off the case. Like you could totally see her coming out with a ruling that says essentially that, and whatever she does decide in terms of running the docket on this case really hard to appeal. It's it's hard to get that stuff in front of an appeals court in a way that, um, you know, will we'll put them in a position to kind of smack it down. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. But um, I think- I Right, because that's, that's not a SEPA trigger that allows mm-hmm. for an expedited appeal with the 11th not. Circuit. Yeah, yeah, it does not. So, And judges have a lot of authority. They have a lot of discretion mm-hmm. to d- figure out how they're going to time things in their own courthouses. I think appellate courts are generally loath to get involved in that. Um, but we'll see if it's totally, if she comes out with a holding that has like really no grounding in existing precedent whatsoever- uh, I think you can expect at least an effort to appeal it on the government's part. Yeah. And then if she does come out with something like that, I would say, well, you set the original trial for August 14th with no consideration about a presidential uh, candidacy. So no, yeah. too, you know, too bad, so sad. On the other that hand, to counter, to counter my uh, gloomy outlook on this one, you have to assume that she knows the world is watching. This is the first big impactful decision she's going to make in this case. If she does it in yep. a way that sets the legal 
uh, world howling about how absurd and baseless it is, that is just going to like really put her in a bad spot. So I hope that she's feeling that pressure, uh, that she understands that, you know, everything she does in this case is going to be scrutinized very closely. And this is the first opportunity for that. So that's a good time to try to get it right. Yeah, she might want to stay on so she can mess shit up later. <laughs> you know, who knows? <laughs> anyway, and we're going to talk more about this SEPA uh, conference that's happening Tuesday, but we have to take a quick break. Everybody stick around. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, Welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Okay, welcome back. Now, before we get to this week's listener question, uh, just a couple of things to cover in the documents case. Um, first, Allison, we have SEPA uh, Section 2 conference on Tuesday. Now, you remember that this was delayed because of uh, Walt Nauta and his lawyer's argument that he didn't have clearance um, to be able to proceed to this hearing, although it's actually not necessary for this <laughs> hearing. So uh, he didn't get quite the delay that he was looking for. Uh, they agreed to a four-day delay with DOJ. Um, which sounds qu uh, quite like DOJ schooled Woodward on SEPA Section 2 and reminded him that he has had three weeks to fill out his SF-86, <laughs> as I've just been complaining. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, this is starting to... I tried not to be all conspiratorial about this from the beginning, but it really is starting to look like they are looking at every utterance in this uh, in this case as an opportunity to squeeze 
five days, five minutes, five weeks, five months, whatever of delay, any chance they can. Uh, so that I, I feel like you're already seeing that kind of leak into the SEPA process. Now, the fact that they resolved the delay issue with in a consent wet, uh, decree, you can pretty much expect the judge is never going to insert herself into those things. And you know, she's essentially refereeing a fight between uh, two parties. And anytime they can come to an agreement between themselves on something that's even remotely reasonable, she's going to let that uh, rule the day. So this, this one uh, worked out in a fairly predictable way. Um, but in addition to that, we have DOJ filing a speedy trial report. This was filed on July 11th, one day after Trump filed to delay his trial until after the election. Now, the speedy trial report uh, is something that's required uh, by the local rules, and also it's in the court's omnibus order establishing pretrial instructions. So the way this works is, as you know, Allison, there's the, the defendant essentially holds the speedy trial right this is in normal cases where defendants actually want to get trials over with. Not, not so much <laughs> right. this one, but nevertheless, the rights still apply. And there is essentially a clock ticking, counting days, because the speedy trial uh, basically says you have to get to the trial within about 70 days. And so along the course, DOJ has to file these reports to say, like, officially how many days have been clocked in the progression towards speedy trial. Now, you can stop the clock or, as they say in court, toll the clock at different, at different points when there's motions being argued and things like that. So that's that's why DOJ's counting, essentially, of the days has to be filed with the court uh, to help the judge keep track of where they are on that speedy trial calendar. So in any case, the United States submits this in writing, post-indictment, and apparently their report is that they have had five non-excludable days and the Speedy Trial Act, um, so far 23 days have told officially since the indictment. Yep. So of the, you know, when this was filed, 28 days from arraignment, 23 of those days don't count and five of them do. And that's just the report that they have to put in there. So we got 65 days to go <laughs> to go for the Speedy Trial Clock. Uh, but I guess the thing is, if it's the defendant's right, uh, how can the DOJ push it? Is their argument like we would be violating their right to a speedy trial if we don't get this done? Because uh, if the if if Trump just officially waived his right to a speedy trial with a thing, can can DOJ keep arguing speedy trial? They can, and that's what I thought was so interesting about the reply brief um, that we were just talking about in the last section. So, um, although under normal circumstances the government doesn't really have an opportunity to rush a defendant to to prepare for trial. It's usually the other way around, right? The defendants, as we were joking a minute ago, typically want to push the government to get off their butts and get ready for trial and get this thing over with. And that's kind of how the speedy trial right is usually executed. That's why people say- Sussman it. did it. Sussman did it because yes. he knew he was going to be acquitted. He was innocent. He's like, let's get this over with, snippety snap. But if it's the DOJ who wants it, how does that even yeah, work? Yeah, he did. And also I think Greg Craig in his trial a while ago yep. did the same thing. But nevertheless, uh, here you have the totally flipped situation where it's the defendant that wants to drag things out. So in their brief, or well, in their response to Trump's motion, the government bases their entire position on this idea that the speedy trial right is not just the possession of the defendant, but there is the in the the it's based in the Constitution and of course uh, laid out in the Speedy Trial Act that justice demands that trials take place uh, in a timely manner. 
And so they're actually relying on kind of the fundamental foundations of the speedy trial, right? Not so much the counting of the clock, but like, hey, we're trying to do justice here and therefore it needs to be conducted and done in a timely manner. I thought that was a, I've never seen the government have and to it's argue in the that public before. interest. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's kind of an interesting position. Um, we'll see if it motivates the judge to actually hold everybody mm. accountable to the, to the to getting things done in a timely fashion. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Um, it is time for a listener question. If you have a question, you can send it in to us. Hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Make sure you put the word Jack in the subject line or it will get lost in the shuffle. Uh, what do we have this week, Andy? All right. So we have one question this week from Sydney. Sydney gives us a, a terrific question. We haven't really talked about this, I don't think, at all so far. So Sydney starts, what will it be like for the jurors in Florida that will decide Donald's fate? He is notorious for alleged witness tampering. I wouldn't put it past him to try to intimidate jurors. Also, how might Donald try to delay the trial with jury selection? Couldn't he just claim, quote, they all hate Trump, Republicans, whatever, and, you know, kind of claim to be the victim since he's such a publicly known figure? And then, of course, she very nicely finishes the question with, I love this show so much. Thank you all for doing it. So... <laughs> Okay, I, I'm going to be honest, that influenced my selection of this question this week. Oh, oh yeah. bias. Yeah. It huh? does work. A little, a little question selection hey, in it, your you know, you flatter the, voir dire. You flatter the question selector and you, you improve your chances, I'm just saying. So to get back to her question, um, it's a really good one. There's a, a bunch of things that I think we can expect uh, the court to do to protect the jurors in this case. Uh and not just because it's, you know, specifically Donald Trump, but because it is a very high profile case, one that will be watched with intense, massive media coverage. And quite frankly, one that's going to grab the attention of a large portion of the of the population of the country. Some folks who are very, very uh, uh, intensely um, emotional and, and some to the point of anger about the fact that this is happening and, and what the outcome will be. So one of the things a judge will do is probably make the jurors all anonymous, which means they'll go through the jury selection process where they'll have to fill out a pretty extensive questionnaire, which will request all kinds of information about their backgrounds and their prior experiences with the legal system and you know questions about that go to this the issue of whether or not they can be impartial. And those questionnaires will all be by number. So the attorneys for either side won't actually know the true identity of the individual jurors. It's also possible that the jurors, once selected, will be sequestered for the duration of the trial, which will mean, you know, they don't go home. They live uh, in a hotel. They get brought into the court every day through kind of surreptitious means so people can't see them. They can't be filmed or photographed. And they kind of live together as this little group of 12 plus however many alternates they, uh, they impanel or they, they select. And that is a very intense and stressful experience. Uh, if you read any of the accounts of jurors who've gone through that, it's, you know, being removed from your family and kept in this little kind of isolation. They're not allowed to read the news media. They're not allowed to go on the internet. So they're, they're really very isolated. But I would expect they'll do both of those things in this case. And that typically is enough to prevent jurors from being tampered with by any defendant or people who feel like they're doing the defendant's bidding. Hmm. Yeah. And I, as you were talking, I wrote down um, the anonymized jury in the Eugene 
Carroll That's uh, right. trial. Yep. They were anonymized, but they were not sequestered. Um, but I can't imagine this is, I mean, this is one of the most high profile uh, cases we've ever had. And then if there's also a one six trial that they wouldn't, um, sequester these jurors, they've done it. For, I mean, we sequester juries a lot sure. in, in this country. It seems like this one, this trial would qualify. Yeah. yeah. It's of course not the majority of cases, but it's, it's not, um, uh, it's not uncommon. I mean, it's rare. It, it's right. rare, but but it, but it does happen. It happens, it happens pretty yeah. fairly uh, frequently, and yeah, you can't. I mean, show me a better case. Where <laughs> show me a better case in which you would want to protect these jurors? Not. I only, imagine you worked with a lot of counterterrorism stuff and, of and uh, mafia stuff, where they had to sequester these folks for their safety, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really. Um, it's not so much like singularly because you're worried about the defendant trying to tamper with them, although maybe that's part of your concern, but it's really more, you don't want the public to know who they are, where they live, who they're, you know, married to, who their families are, because you don't want to subject them to the sort of intense uh, harassment and scrutiny that we all know is, is, has become commonplace today in the age of internet and social media. And I should also say is a tactic that we've seen employed by uh, supporters of the president and people who were, uh, particularly frustrated with the outcome of the 2020 election. You've seen um, election officials and volunteers, poll workers in states across the country who've been uh, threatened and some of whom have actually been, um, uh, have been the subject of attempted acts of violence. So there's a serious threat here. Uh, and I think probably they'll do everything they can to protect these folks. Yeah, that sounds reasonable to me. All right, thank you so much for that question. And uh, remember, flatter the question selector, <laughs> and you might get your. Um, there you go. Now watch, watch what happens. Oh, uh, I'm in, waiting. In our, I, I can't wait. In our, <laughs> our inbox, <laughs> Andy. If you need a boost of confidence, you just, you just give me a call. I'll uh, talk to you. This is the best. Um, you know, I'm always afraid <laughs> of what people might be saying, but now you know, I'm just going to tee it up. Only say nice things. There you go. Oh, that's funny. Um, so again, you can send that to hello at MullerSheWrote.com. Put Jack in the subject line and uh, and, we'll, and we'll get to your question. Um, and thank you so much to Norm Eisen for oh joining gosh, us today. Oh my gosh, he's the best. To talk about that uh, model prosecution memo. Um, and uh, it, this has been a, a, a heck of a week. And as we always wonder what's going to happen next week, it's always something pretty major. So uh I think we're on indictment watch. Um, we'll see what en we'll see what ends up happening. I, but, uh, it's I been agree. Great, a great show. So yeah, thank I you agree so with much. You. Buckle in because it's not going to start slowing down. It's only going to keep picking up. We'll be <laughs> learning more stuff, and um, yeah, we'll do our best to squeeze it in. So yeah, all, right. all good. Thanks. All right, I've been Allison Gill, and I'm Andy McCabe. We'll see you next week on Jack. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA 
as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.